There are a small number of subjects that a Bible teacher can speak on and be almost certain to stir the consciences of their Christian hearers. Almost all of us find some subjects awkward or threatening or even guilt-arousing. In my limited experience, I think there are about four subjects that almost always have that effect on people. Whenever I speak on forgiveness, there are some who are troubled by a secret grudge that they bear. Whenever I speak on sexual purity, there are some who are troubled by secret thoughts or behaviour. Whenever I speak on prayer, I know that there are many consciences that are easily provoked. And when I speak on sharing the gospel with others, I know many of my hearers are wishing I would talk about something else. Now, I know this partly because others have shared with me how they feel, but mainly because of my experience as a hearer, sitting under God's word, feeling these exact same things myself. Well, as we open God's word this morning, I'm very aware that two of the four raw nerve topics are in our passage today, prayer and evangelism. So why don't we pray that God's spirit will prick our consciences and comfort our hearts as we see the wonder of a life captivated by Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here today. We want to thank you for your word, and we want to thank you for the way that you work through your word in your spirit. We pray you would comfort us. You would show us the great privilege it is to pray, and the great privilege it is to bring our request to you and share the, 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 the desire to see people come to know you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you'd like to keep your Bibles open to chapter 4, verse 2. This is how Paul starts. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too. Now, all the evidence points to the fact that Paul was a remarkable prayer. You don't have to go any further than the first chapter of this letter. We, in 1 verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. Or 1 verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And this letter's no one off. In fact, the same dedication to prayerfulness litters the pages of his letters to the Romans, the Ephesians, the Philippians, Thessalonians, as well as his letters to Timothy and Philemon. Prayerfulness is something that characterized Paul. It's, it's something he did. I'd imagine it must have taken a great deal of his time. Whenever you see someone like that, it's hard not to turn immediately to our secret failures in praying, to focus on the inadequacies we feel as prayers, our little time and effort we give to praying, and how easily it is the, the first thing to drop it from our list of daily activities, and before long, we feel shame and guilt. I'm so thankful that no one really knows how feeble my praying is. Does anyone else feel like that? But I want to suggest that God's word does not work like that. I think it's all too easy for preachers like me to arouse strong feelings of guilt, to stir up memories, to touch on raw nerves, because we as preachers have them too. We can do that. But my question is, is this the work of the Spirit of God? Is this what the Word of God does? Or is it the invention of the preacher to create an experience that's emotionally engaging? 
Now, I'm not suggesting that the Word of God doesn't search our consciences, nor am I suggesting that shame and guilt are things we should ignore or deny or run away from. We shouldn't. The Spirit does stir our emotions and consciences by His Word. But what I want to ensure is that God's Word does God's work rather than manipulative speaking doing the preacher's work. I want God's Word to do God's work rather than manipulative speaking doing the preacher's work. Faithful explanation of the Word of God allows Scripture to set the agenda. It allows God's Word to speak. It unleashes God's Word from the feebleness of mankind and the preacher's agenda and purpose and lets God speak. You don't want to hear my thoughts. (laughs) I don't even want to hear my thoughts. To be frank, you shouldn't give two hoots about what I think. If I tell you I think you should work out a little more or have a bit more fun or spend more time in meditation, so what? The extent you should listen to my words is the extent they reflect God's word. Say it again. The extent you should listen to my words is the extent they reflect God's word. So the question for us this morning is, how does God want us to think about prayer and evangelism? Not how have I been made to think before or what do I think about it, but how does God want me to think and act? And what strikes me from this passage is how Paul speaks to us about prayer, particularly the seriousness of the call to pray, to follow Paul's example. 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. The power of the call to pray, its kind of motivation and its source, doesn't come to us as just some abstract command in the Bible. Paul is not some boot camp fitness instructor. He's kind of standing there saying, this is what you need to do. Devote yourself to prayer. Suck it up, you spiritual wimps. That's not what he's doing. The motivation and power to pray, to what Paul is about to say to us in that how we should pray, comes from the context of Paul's words in this letter. Paul prayed because he recognized who Jesus was. He got it. He understood that all things were created by Jesus. All things were created for him. He knew that Jesus was the one who was holding the whole world together. That Jesus was the one who'd nailed his sinners to a tree. Who'd offered him forgiveness. Who'd offered him hope. Jesus had died his death and he offered Paul life. Not just any life, but the life of the Son of God. Paul prayed not simply as a spiritual exercise, certainly not to move a kind of inactive God. Paul prayed because he'd been captivated by Jesus. He got who Jesus was. And that, that, that motivated him, that kind of meant he could do nothing else but devote himself to prayer, and so he passed on. This thing that he got is something that was extraordinary that he may now pray because of what God has done. When you understand the gift God has given us, when you understand Jesus, when you're conscious of what God's doing in this world, what he's done in the past and what he's going to do, there's a sense of privilege that comes with prayer. Not a guilt-ridden, oh, I've got to do this, but a sense of privilege. It doesn't condemn us, it doesn't threaten us, and arouse senses of guilt. It's a gospel invitation. 
It's saying, come along and be part of this Word of God as it does its work in this world. The direction to pray from Paul is an invitation to enter into relationship with God. To enter the throne room of the one who created all things and come before him. It's the natural outworking of a right relationship with God. So those who depend on Jesus as Lord are allowed into the throne room of the King of the universe. Do you get that? If you trust in Jesus, you are allowed in to speak to the one who spoke when creation happened, who spoke and bodies formed. We are allowed in to speak to him. We don't go in to listen. We don't pray to listen to God. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not about kind of opening our ears to what he's saying. Prayer is asking. It's coming before him. If we want to listen to God, we open his word and we, we allow his spirit to convict us and change us through that word. But the privilege we have here is to come into that throne room and ask. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, do you see it? We can come before God who knows and does all things and ask. We get to stand before the one who saved us, before the one who's in control of everything, and ask. See, Paul really got what was going on. And when we get what's going on, when we see the privilege of prayer, it's like, are you crazy? Why wouldn't I want to come and speak to the God who who is in control of all things, who saved me? Why wouldn't I want to speak with him? He's done so much for me. He has, he, has, he has made me die with Christ and has, has put me at the right hand of the Father. I have an eternity to look for. Of course I want to speak to him. That's the motivation for prayer. That's why Paul says, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So the type of prayer that Paul's talking about isn't that sleepy activity that I so often indulge in. You know that prayer when you kind of, you might pray something as you're going off to sleep and you all you remember in the morning is that you went to sleep praying. Uh, and it was probably in the first little bit. <laughs> no, praying, according to what Paul is talking about, requires being watchful or awake, same type of word. Awake, not just in our kind of what we're thinking, but awake to what's really happening in this world. Awake to the reality of who you are, given the context of what Paul said. Awake to the fact that you've been raised with Christ and thankful. So stay awake. Keep your eyes fixed on the reality of what's going on. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has risen. He has offered us eternal life. And Paul says to pray in a way that is awake. Don't lose sight of those facts. Keep your eyes fixed, he said in chapter 3, on what is above, on who you are. This awakeness or alertness or consciousness of what is really happening in the world is what is to drive our prayers. See, when you see life and the world around us in the brilliant light of what Jesus has done, then we we just have an alertness to the reality of what's actually going on. We're able to pray with thanksgiving. That kind of settles the matter about prayer being guilt-driven, doesn't it? I don't think you can be... Uh, Paul's pushing us to be guilt-driven in the way we pray because he wants us to pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is flowing from the great blessing that we have. It's not like, oh, I'm thankfully guilty. Or thank, thank you that I'm feeling guilty. It's, it's, it doesn't fit. We're to pray with thanksgiving. 
Because that is what prayer is energized by, not guilt, but thankfulness. Paul wants us to be moved to pray, not by guilt, I'll say it again, not by our shame or our inadequacies, but by being woken up, by being made alert to who we are and what's going on, by thankfulness. So, that's how he wants us to pray and why he wants us to pray. What's the content of this prayer Paul has in mind? Well, it's watchful, thankful praying. And it's to be what God is doing. It's about what, what, is, what has happened. So Paul then moves on in the next section to pray for the preachers of the gospel. Have a look at uh, 4 verse 3. <clears throat> Paul says, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. That's what someone who is captivated by Jesus comes to the Father who can do anything he asks and asks for. And I find it amazing. Here's a guy who's in prison. He's in chains. He's kind of bound there. He can't be even doing the work that you think he wanted to be doing. His, his very life is in danger. Paul doesn't call for the type of prayer that I think I would call for if I was writing this letter. Paul, I mean, I'm sure the believers would have been praying for Paul's safety. They would have been praying for his release and his physical needs. But for Paul, that's just not what's on his mind. It's kind of insignificant in some ways. That's not what he comes to the creator of all things about. Precisely because Paul is awake. He gets it. He's seen who Jesus is. And his prayers follow the fact that he wants the world to know who Jesus is too. He prays that God would open a door for the word. Not that God would open the door of his, of his imprisonment. He doesn't want the cell doors to be opened, but the word of God to be open in people's hearts. His imprisonment is kind of irrelevant. Paul's watchful focus is the work of the word of God. His focus is on Jesus. And the amazing reality shift that occurs from hearing who Jesus is. If you're here today and you don't yet call Jesus your, your Saviour and your Lord, then I want you to hear this one thing from the mouth of Paul. Here is a guy who considers your relationship with God of far more importance than his own faith. Here is a guy who would rather stay in jail and the word of God be impacted on his hearers, on you here, for him stay there. That's amazing for him. Like, I, I don't know if I'd do that. Isn't it time to check Jesus out? Isn't it time to stop ignoring or putting away or just not wanting to deal with the evidence? To stop making excuses or and experience the wonder that Paul experiences. The wonder of forgiveness, the wonder of freedom, of knowing what life to the full is about, of knowing God, the God who's offered you eternal life. See, Paul sees this, see, this word that Paul so diligently labors in, this word that he considers more precious than his own life, this word that 
He longs all of us to be affected by. See, remember that the start of the book was bearing fruit all over the world. This is no dead word. Christianity is no dead religion. God's word has been bearing fruit since this time. And look at us. We're a small nation right down the bottom of the, the end of the world. Uh, and we're hearing about Jesus. This word is powerful. This word changes the world. And it's the same word that dwells amongst us here this morning. As we open God's word by his spirit, this word is shifting our perspective. Paul's prayer is that God would open to us, God would open to the world, in fact, a door for the word, a door for this message of life. See, the work of the word is not something that, that we humans can accomplish. We can't make people become Christians. We can't make God's word have an impact on people's lives. Not even Paul could do that. Paul came and asked God to open the door so that his preaching may be effective, so that when he spoke the truth, it may make an impact. You know, it's a reminder of how hard this work is. I think, you know, as a young church player, I'm guilty of doing this. Uh, myself, but sometimes our enthusiasm, uh, we kind of give the impression that if only we get our strategy right, if only I just did the right things, if I was kind of culturally relevant, uh, more contextualized, that, that I was more technologically savvy, that we kind of had cool iPhone apps and lots of, um, lots of kind of video that people love, that if we were more entrepreneurial and out in the public, then our preaching and speaking of God's word would have an impact. If only I could just be more... But if that's all we think, then we have a huge problem. Do you have any idea how tightly shut and bolted closed the hearts of this world are to the Word of God? The doors of the human heart are shut so tight. Do you have any idea how thick the darkness is in this world? The alienation from speaking the gospel is extreme. The hostility is intense. This word will only do its work if God opens a door. So pray with me. Come before the one who gave us all things and pray that he would open the door to people seeing who Jesus is and experiencing the life that we've seen. That's what we'll do if we're watchful and if we're thankful. But remember Paul's words. The start of the book he rejoices in his sufferings for our sake. As we start as a young church plant, the opposition and resistance are going to be strong. The servant of this gospel word, the one who speaks it, will suffer. As we plant our church, as we labor with all his energy to speak the word of Christ, to live as people who are captivated by Jesus, we will suffer. Sometimes, just with someone looking at us going, as if you still believe that, other times we may miss out on jobs. Uh, we may have family members turn against us and say, I can't believe you believe that. Broken relationships, hardship, it will come. It'll be hard work starting a church, being committed to seeing this happen every week just so that God's word can get out. It'll be hard to work out the time. When do I... Hang out with friends so I can share Jesus. Just, well, just get to know them. 
There'll be sacrifices that need to be made for all of us. So friends, pray. Not that those who proclaim Christ won't suffer, but pray that as they suffer, as we suffer, God will open a door to the Word. Now, not everyone has been given the task that Paul had of God's kind of messenger to take the gospel out to the world. You've got to remember, Paul is a, a specific guy here. So we're not all called to go and be evangelists, to preach the word to everyone. We need to say that. But a life captivated by Jesus will be a life that Paul talks about in verse 5. That's wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Wise. What does that mean? What does it mean to live a life captivated for us, for many of us who are kind of Bible preachers, but we're kind of solid Christians and we want people to know about Jesus how do we live lives that are wise? Well, the Bible tells us to be at peace with everybody, Romans. Uh, Paul kind of puts out the idea that we are to be all things to all men, so we may win some. Yet, we're also never to become people pleasers. We're never to just be, yes, I'll, I'll kind of just say what you think so you can hear this. Remember that, that word Jesus said, Woe unto you when all, all men speak well of you. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. When a Christian has the admiration of the whole of society, we've got to ask, are we still doing the work of someone who's acting wisely, who's speaking this truth? Well, yes and no. <laughs> See, we need wisdom to know how best to use the time God has given us. Do we speak now when that opportunity comes up, or do I wait for another moment? Is this the one God wants me to take? Is this the, the door that's open to the Word or not? You know that feeling? That's why we need to pray. Pray that we will be wise. Come before our God and say, help me. But whenever you do speak, Paul says our words need to be gracious. Never argumentative, having a go at people or, or having some kind of moral high ground that we have achieved this knowledge of God by our own doing. What Paul is saying is we need to be gracious loving in the way we speak, yet seasoned with salt. When our words need to be a little different, a little like speaking of a world that someone just hasn't seen before, yet it looks so right and so good. So when we're not gracious, we'll say silly things, people aren't going to listen to us later. If we're not loving in the way we act to those around us, you know, if, if we blab on about everything and we're always talking, nobody listens to us when we've got something important to say. Yeah, we want to work out what to say. So when we do speak, people listen. We want to have that good balance of wisdom. You know, at what point do you complain to your neighbour that they've been too noisy? How many nights does it take before you're like, that's it, that's enough? And at what point when you do complain, do you then lose the opportunity to share the gospel? I don't know. I don't think there's any clear-cut kind of line there. But we've got to do it in a way that is gracious in a way that our neighbour says, you know what, yeah, sorry about that. And you're like, hey, no worries. In a way that they see your graciousness, that you love them, not in order just to win them to know Jesus, but because you love them as part of God's creation and you want to get to know them and you want to share this life you have been shown with them. Let you be the person that others want to come to when they want a quality comment. When the time comes when they're provoked about what is life, that you're the person that they, A, know has, a, has an opinion on what life is, and it be, has been gracious and loving 
and wants to share Jesus with you. Well, at 4 verse 4, the apostles' God-given task was to reveal this mystery to the world, to make it known by proclaiming Christ. Him we proclaim, he said in 128, presenting everyone mature in Christ. Do you think Paul has been trying to make you feel bad by kind of pointing out how much you fall short in your prayer life or in your evangelism? Do you think he's been trying to stir up guilt in, in, the, in the readers of this word, trying to make us guilty about our efforts of evangelism? Do you think Paul expected his words would have any effect on our life? I probably think that he did. But do you see how it works? Praying and sharing the news of Jesus comes not from the guilt, not even from a sense of duty. But I want to say again, there's nothing wrong with feeling guilty. Sometimes God uses it. And there's nothing wrong with doing things out of duty, but it's just not how it works here. Watchfulness and thankfulness come from the marvelous things God has done and He is doing in this world. Praying flows from the recognition of who Jesus is and what He has done. It flows from being captivated by Jesus. From having Jesus turn your world upside down and seeing the world in a whole new light so that you are now watchful and thankful. If you've seen Jesus for who He is, how can you not be praying that this amazing work and will of God would bear fruit in you, in those around you, in your friends, in the people that don't yet know him, in this city, in this country, in this world. How can we not? The reason I don't do it is because I've forgotten how awesome Jesus is, how much I've been given. And when I fix my eyes on that, of course, I want to come to him. Being watchful, being thankful. Devote yourselves to praying, says Paul, and be wise. Full of grace and season with soul. We're going to pray together now and Andrew's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer where we can be exactly that, watchful and thankful.